Good morning. Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 16. So we continue to look at the life of Peter. Matthew chapter 16. And uh, you remember last week we talked about discipleship. And really we talked about the fact that the Lord calls us to follow Him. And we looked at the general fact that the Lord wants us to follow Him. We didn't really talk into what the Lord wanted us to follow Him. We talked about the fact the Lord wants us to follow Him or be His students. Disciples mean students. More than anything else. It has to be the most important thing to us. And the example was with uh, Peter. He was a fisher of fish. And Jesus says, come follow me. I will make you a fisher of men. He had to leave his career behind to follow Jesus. It had, has to be the most important thing to you. We talked about the fact it had to be uh, something that's part of your life, every part of your life. Uh, I, we use the expression a lot of time, 24-7. It means that's what I do all the time. And that's what the Lord wanted Peter to do. When Peter had an idea of going fishing at night instead of sleeping and doing what he should be doing, there were consequences the following day. The Lord wanted him to trust him and always follow him in every area of his life. And we also saw in the experience of Peter walking on water that the Lord wanted us to follow him when, even when it was impossible for us to do so. What I mean is impossible by our own power. Obviously, it was possible. Peter walked on water. It didn't last very long in that experience, but the Lord provided the supernatural power to do the impossible thing that he asked Peter to do. The one thing we didn't talk about is what is it that the Lord actually wants us to do. And obviously there'll be differences. There might be things that are specific to my life that the Lord will want me to do, and he may not want you to do it. He may have something different for you to be doing. But there are certain things that apply to all of us in the Scripture. Some of you might be familiar with the book that... Uh, Bill McDonald wrote, called True Discipleship, where Bill was uh, challenging, really, is just bringing out passages in the scriptures, which is what the Lord is expecting every one of us to be doing. And uh, some of those things are difficult things for us to do. I appreciate how, how Bill starts in the introduction and says, to the extent that some of these things haven't come to be fulfilled in our own lives, that the expressed wishes of our heart. We desire to be that. He wanted to be following the Lord in all these areas that the Lord led before me, before him. And uh, I have to acknowledge in myself, as I'm speaking about some of these things, I'm not saying I'm there. Okay, guys, you need to be doing what I'm doing. I'm convicted as I look at these passages and how fall I short from following the Lord. Now, the nice thing we have is often we're very quiet about the our lack in our life of following the Lord in how he's calling us. What we have in Peter is a wonderful guy that speaks out. And uh, he tells us really where he's at. And a lot of time he had a difficult time following the Lord. Or really, it was as the Lord was leading and Peter and the disciples were following, Peter was saying, wait a second, I, I think that's the wrong way. We should go that way. And most of us would be perhaps smart enough to keep our mouth shut. And maybe Peter would go ahead and say it. But really what Peter was expressing is the same thing that's in our heart. We all have difficulty in certain things that the Lord wants us to do, in certain ways that the Lord is leading. 
So, so that's what we'll look at today. We'll look at perhaps more challenging things that the Lord is asking us to do as disciples. But these are real things the Lord is expecting us to do. It's things we will struggle with. But uh, hopefully, as the Lord challenges us, we'll, we'll take the steps in the right direction and follow Him. That's what it means to be disciples, following the Lord as He's leading us to do. With that, let's look at Matthew chapter 16. And we'll start at verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Just to step back a little bit, this happens after the great uh, declaration of, of Peter. If you remember, Jesus asked his disciples, Who do men say that I am? And people had all kinds of ideas of who Jesus might be. And, Je- and Jesus uh, tell, tell the disciples, But who do you say? That I am. And that's when Peter comes out and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So, so Peter is right on in his understanding of who Jesus is and in his desire to follow the Lord. And yet now the Lord turns and really for the first time starts talking to his disciples of some of the bad things that were going to happen to him. Well, yes, I am the Christ. I am the son of the living God. But let me start letting, letting you guys in on this. Some bad things are going to happen to me. He's preparing them for the cross. He's trying to get them prepared because they're going to have a really hard time when Jesus is taken and is crucified and killed. Even though he rises three days later, these guys will have a really hard time getting over the fact that Jesus had to die. This wasn't part of their idea of what the Messiah was going to do. And even though he tells them repeatedly, I'm going to rise again, once he's dead, you know, these guys are laid up on their back. They're not... uh, they're not there waiting for him to rise again, even though he told them this was going to be a real shaker for them. And Jesus is trying to prepare them and saying, look, these things are going to happen to me. Bad things are going to happen to me. And Peter is like, wait a second, this is not going to happen here, Lord. This has to stop right now. And uh, we, we have to appreciate again that the disciples didn't know about the cross before it. Even though the Old Testament contains passages about the fact Jesus was going, going to die on the cross, most uh, really, pretty much everyone did not understand that. They, they didn't understand what Jesus was going to do on the cross. They expected the Messiah was going to come as some sort of a hero and save them from the Romans and, and bring world peace and all these other things that we want. But the cross, they didn't understand. Um, all right, well, Jesus here says, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Jesus has a really strong response here that I think a lot of time bothers us. Why is he being so hard on Peter? The poor guy just doesn't understand. Well, it has to do with what Peter was doing here, perhaps unknowingly to him. He was serving Satan. And uh, to help appreciate it, we could look back and look at the temptation of Satan, how Satan was trying to tempt Jesus uh, at the beginning of this book. He came to him and he said, If you are the son of God, command his stones to become bread and feed yourself because I know you're hungry. You've been here for 40 days and 40 nights without eating food. I know you're hungry. Take care of yourself, Jesus. 
this is unreasonable here, what God is expecting of you. Just, if you are the son of God, go ahead and, and make some bread out of these stones and take care of yourself. And uh, Jesus says, man shall not live by, by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds forth from the mouth of God. What Jesus is saying, I only want to do what God wants me to do. Now, and it goes all the way back to the garden. If you think about Adam and Eve, God created them, he created the garden, they had all these wonderful things. God gave them one law, don't eat of the fruits of that tree. And Satan comes and starts talking about how God is unreasonable in his commandments to them. And really, they should be looking out for number one. And if they ate of this tree, all these good things will happen. And that's what they decide to do. They decide to forsake what God told them and instead try to take care of themselves. And that's what Peter is really telling Jesus to do here. He says, Jesus, you need to take care of yourself. This is really not a good idea. You shouldn't have to suffer. You shouldn't have to die. Take care of yourself. And, and so Peter is rejecting what Peter, Jesus is rejecting what Peter is saying as coming from Satan. Wait a second. I don't want to listen to this. And he says, you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. What he's doing, this doctrine that we have to first take care of ourselves and be concerned over my needs, what will provide for me for my life, is, is a human doctrine that comes from hell. This is what Satan wants us to do, to be chiefly concerned of ourselves and to seek to serve ourselves with our life. And Jesus said, I'm going to have nothing to do with that. I'm here to serve God. And uh, we talked about it this morning uh, in the breaking of bread, of how in heaven you see a scene of worship. God is sitting on the throne and you have all the angels surrounding him, worshiping him. And uh, all of mankind that went to heaven, they're sitting there and worshiping him. And when Jesus is talking here about not not uh, being mindful of the things of God, that's what he is talking about. This was the life of Jesus, was a life of worship being poured out before God. It was literally an act, a life being offered up to to God as an act of worship to God the Father. And... That's the life that he is calling us to follow. Jesus wants us to live. Obviously, we can't die on the cross. We wouldn't do anybody good because we're sinners. All I could do at the cross is die for my own sins. I can't help you. But we're supposed to follow him in laying down our life as an act of worship to God. And there's some examples of that in the scriptures. Uh, we have Mary. Uh, those of you who are at the ladies' um, Tea, high tea. The ladies' high tea got to hear a devotional about Mary. And if you think about it, that was the life of Mary. She was sitting at Jesus' feet. And at the last opportunity she had, she gave him the very best that she had. She took that bottle of perfume that was worth about a year's wages, so seventy, eighty thousand dollars $80,000 in this area, and just broke it and poured it upon Jesus. And all the disciples were, what a waste! Stop that! This is terrible! We could have sold it and given it to the poor. And Jesus disagrees with them. He says, no, she, she did a good work on me. And you know what she said, did here? Wherever this gospel is going to go, what this woman did will be spoken in memorial of her. Why? Because that's what he wants. He wants us to live a life of worship. We were talking about uh, Paul before and how he was in prison. And from a human point of view, you would say that he was suffering. Well, this is what Paul said. In uh, Philippians 2.17, I'll just read it. He said, Yes, and if I am being poured out 
as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Paul said, this is a wonderful thing, that my life is getting poured out as an act of worship to God. I am happy to suffer if that is furthering the cause of God, if this is bringing worship and honor to God. That's the lives that, believe it or not, we're supposed to be living. This is why God actually created us. Okay, the whole thing took, if you would, a turn to the worst in the Garden of Eden, where Satan was there to convince mankind, look, it's not about God, it's about you. You need to take care of yourself. It should have always been all for God. We should have always been there with the angels, busy in worshiping God and appreciating Him. And that's what our life here should be. It should be a life of worship to God. What can I do with my life to bring honor to God is what should be in my mind. Not what can I do with my life to take care of myself and make sure I don't suffer and make sure there's something for me in my old age. My life should be, what can I do to worship God with my life? Let's turn to chapter 17. We'll look at uh, Peter's next opportunity of putting his... uh, Put in his mouth. Actually, here the Lord is very gracious and he prevents Peter from putting his foot in his mouth. But you could tell he was about to do it. Uh, Matthew chapter 17 and verse 24. And when they had come to Capernaum, those who received the temple tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the temple tax? He said, Yes. And when he had come into the house, Jesus anticipated him, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes, from their own sons or from strangers? Peter said to him, From strangers. Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. Nevertheless, lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in a hook, and take the fish that comes up first. And when you have opened its mouth, you will find a piece of money... Take that and give it to them for me and for you. Okay, the temple tax. What was a temple tax all about? In some of your translation, you might just have the word tax or the word uh, tribute. This was different from the tax of the Romans. The Romans had their tax collector, and the tax collector would knock on your door and say, uh, pay up. Uh, according to our uh, piece of paper here, you ask $1,000. And if you say, sorry, you know, I, I don't want to give it to you, I don't have it, you know, the next knock on the door you received was from a Roman soldier. And you'd hand him the money. <laughs> well, this was different. This was a Jewish tax. They didn't have any force. They couldn't force people to give them money. But it was considered a religious duty. If you were a good Jew, wouldn't you want to support the temple? Hey, this is going to go and support the temple. Make sure it's upkept and looks beautiful. I'll make sure there's enough animals being brought every day to offer to God. And therefore, this is a good thing. As a good Jew... Don't you want to pay this temple tax? So it was, you know, quote-unquote, a good work. It was recognized if you were a Jew, this is a good thing. If I want to be a, a good Jew, I should be paying this tax. And so these guys come to Peter and say, well, doesn't your master do this? And Peter, you know, it took him about a fraction of a second to figure out, yes, this is a good work, and therefore I'm sure my master would totally support it. <laughs> the problem is Jesus hasn't paid this tax. So really, Peter is going off on his own. Now, is not, you know, he's probably protect, trying to protect Jesus, so to speak. But I think he's really is convinced in his own mind this is the right thing to do, because he he goes next into the house, 
And it says Jesus anticipated him, which means Peter was about to start talking about this. He was about to start convincing Jesus how good this was and really we should, we should pay this tax that is going to go to the temple. Uh, and there's nothing wrong, you know, per se with the tax. It's just one of the types of good works we can do that is generally expected by the religious community that we do. Today, we might say, well, you ought to tithe. You know, doesn't your master tithe when he goes to church? Doesn't he give 10% of what he gives to the church? Uh, doesn't he go to church every Sunday? There's a lot of things we, we consider to be uh, a basic standard of behavior for a religious person. This is a good work. Doesn't he give to charity? Doesn't he do, uh, you know, helps old ladies walk across the street? I mean, there's all these things we're supposed to be doing. We really want to call ourselves Christians. Well, uh, Jesus doesn't say there's anything wrong with these good works, but he, he points out the problem he has with what's being done in this question to Simon or Peter. He says, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes from their own sons or from strangers? So what he's likening here, this, this tax, which in this case really was all these good works, is taxes, something that's being required and he's saying, who do kings require? Do kings lay taxes on their own sons or on the strangers? What he means is really everybody else in the kingdom besides for their own sons. And Peter gives the correct answer, well, not their sons, the strangers or other people in the kingdom. And Jesus says this, well, then the sons are free. And it, some people interpret this saying, well, because Jesus was really God or the son of God, he was tax exempt from the temple tax. Well, it doesn't work because he uses the word plural, sons. Really, what he's referring to is himself and Peter, and really everybody who has become sons of God, because that's what the scripture says. It says, uh, to whomever believes on him or receives him, to them he gave the right to become the sons or children of God. If you believe in Jesus, you become a son of God. And Jesus says, you're free. We like religious uh, rules, I think, for a couple of reasons. This is why, why is this something that was hard for Peter? Why is this something that's difficult for us to let go of these kind of religious rules? I think there's, there's, there's uh, two main reasons that, that we like having religious rules. Like, well, to be a religious person, I need to go to church on Sunday. I need to pay my tithe. I need to do this and that. There's two reasons. One is... We think that's the only way to get people to be good. And uh, that's something I often find when I witness to, to uh, a friend, particularly a religious person that's a religious person, and I tell them, well, Jesus paid for all my sins, so I'm going to heaven. It's not based on anything I do. I don't have to do anything to save myself. Jesus paid for my sins. And a lot of time people will come with this objection, well, what's going to keep people doing good things? Why it's going to keep people from just going out and sinning? They'll just believe in Jesus and they'll walk out and... They'll start doing all these terrible... How do we control people and get them to do good things? So we feel it's necessary. We believe it's necessary. Uh, the other reason I think we do it is it gives me the ability of doing certain things and doing whatever I want to do with the rest of my time. Okay, I'll go to church. I'll be there from, you know, 11 to 12 on Sunday. I can do that. I'll tithe, all right, you know, I'll give 10% of my income or, or whatever it is we believe is a good work. I'll do these things and then that's it. For the rest of my time, 
I am free. And that's the way it works in a kingdom when you think about taxes. Taxes, if I'm the king, well, there are certain things you're required as a citizen. I want you to pay your taxes. Maybe you have to give uh, me certain years of service in the army. Uh, you have to maintain certain other laws I come up with. And the rest of the time, you're on your own. You can do whatever you want to do. I don't care, as long as you meet these certain requirements. Now, it doesn't work like that with your son. Okay, with your son, you're not requiring him to pay taxes, but you're expecting him to follow up and to be the next king after you. He's going to have to give his life for the kingdom. If he is a good king, this is what his life is going to be all about, serving the kingdom. That's why I'm not requiring him to do taxes. So, so we much rather be the people paying the taxes. Okay, I just want to give me a few good works to do. I'll do those and then leave me alone the rest of the time. I want to do what I want to do. Okay, that's, that's why people like religion. Number one, it, it gives them a sense of control, trying to make sure people are doing the right and good thing. And number two, it frees them up to do what they really want to do instead of giving their life to God. Um, that's why we like it. I have a couple of reasons of why Jesus doesn't like it, why God doesn't like us trying to live by religious rules, thinking that if I, if I go to church, if I tithe, if I do this and that, then I'm okay with God. Number one, it cheapens the work of the cross. Okay, In the cross, Christ has done everything necessary to make you a son of God. There is nothing else that you need. We were singing today, and I think I might have I missed uh, some of the words, but uh, I think in this, as we were worshiping the Lord in, uh, this morning, there was a, a song that Don started us with, and then Eric added a verse. I don't see Eric here. But it went something like this. I have his righteousness. I stand complete in him and worship him. Is that correct? Did I get that? But right, <clears throat> Which is really where God wants us to be. He wants us to be completely satisfied with what his son has done for us. He's done enough work to make me good. I don't need to have all these religious rules that are somehow keeping me in check and make sure that I don't behave myself. The cross has accomplished everything necessary to make me a son of God. First of all, positionally, which means I'm going to heaven, which is a wonderful thing. Second of all, practically, he's given me a new nature. He defeated my sinful nature. He's given me his Holy Spirit. He's given me everything necessary to live a life that's pleasing to God. I don't need a bunch of religious rules telling me what to do. And neither do you. All you need is what Jesus did for you on the cross. Number two, the other reason that that Jesus doesn't like religious rules and that doesn't want us to be living in such a way that we're looking for the next religious rule that we're supposed to follow is he wants us to serve him out of love and not out of compulsion. We're talking here about the temple tax. It's interesting, there's no law in the Bible telling us to pay the temple tax or Jesus would be paying it because he lived perfectly by the law. There was a law that said when Israel is numbered, Every uh, male uh, between a certain age was supposed to give half a shekel. And that was supposed to be just part of the numbering, which wasn't supposed to happen all the time. This is this, there were specific occasions where God told them to number the people. And then every, every uh, uh, male of a certain age was supposed to pay half a shekel. Uh, that wasn't a, a law that was supposed to, something that was supposed to happen every year. It wasn't something that was supposed to be especially for the temple. Okay. Probably where this comes from was uh, 
if you remember, we studied about Nehemiah and uh, Ezra, and there was a revival in the later days of Israel where people all of a sudden got serious about God again. Over there, it does say that they came up with a rule where everybody would contribute a third of a shekel once a year for the support of the temple. So it could be that this tax has actually come from that time, but it really was just something they decided to do in those days. At the time, their heart was right before God. They did it out of love to God, and that was fine. Okay, It wasn't supposed to become this tax and commandment for coming generations that God expected everybody to be doing. Uh, so really, there was no command. If you look back at how the original temple was built, it was actually the tabernacle, there was a call-out for a free offering. You remember, Moses didn't go and tell every Israelite, all right, I want 10% from everyone or a shekel from everyone. He just said, whoever wants to, out of his heart, let him bring. And this was like the one time Israel shown in the Old Testament, or at least in that particular period of time. People actually brought too much. People were loaded with treasure from Egypt, which God has just given them, and they actually wanted to give something back to God. And so they were coming and giving to God. And that's really what God wants. He wants us to give out of our heart. And again, that's why God doesn't like religious rules, and why Jesus wasn't living by religious rules, and why he doesn't want us to live by religious rules. He wants us to live as, as son. We, I have this verse in, I'll just read it, out of Ephesians chapter 5. We, we looked at it a few weeks ago. He says, Therefore be followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us, and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. So it, it has the, the sacrifice of Christ again being offered to God, but the main emphasis is be followers of God as their children. As a, as a child being raised and looks up to his father as he is administrating the kingdom and he's learning from him, that's what God wants us to do, is to just follow his example. Learn from him. And as dear children that love their parents and want to do what their parents want them to do, like Jesus did, he says, my food is to do the will of him that sent me. That's what he wants us to do, is out of desire to him to serve him. Okay, let's look at our last passage. In John chapter 13. John chapter 13. And starting in verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover... When Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God, and was going to God, arose from supper, and laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. After that, he pulled water into a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this 
Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, You are not all clean. So we have here, uh, this is a scene that uh, should belong in the scenes we often see of the Last Supper. Remember the picture of the guys sitting at the table on chairs and there's 12 of them around Jesus. Well, you have to kind of erase it from your mind because they probably didn't have chairs and so the table would have probably been a very low table. But this is where this happened. It's after the meal was over that uh, Jesus is now doing. This is his last night with his disciples. And it says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. This is an act of love of Jesus to his disciples. And it says there that he uh, takes off his clothes. He probably had a robe on or something. And he puts on, gives himself with a towel, which was the way a slave would have been dressed at the time. He takes a bowl and he fills it up with water. And then he goes and he sits before his disciples on the floor. He takes... He washes their feet in the water, and then he takes the towel that he's wearing, and he wipes and cleans their feet with it. It was an act that it's hard for us to imagine today because we don't do it. This was, this was just a common act of, of uh, appreciation or love in those days. There was one problem. As a teacher, he would be the last person you'd expect to do it. You might imagine him saying something like, right, Peter, you know, take off your clothes, put on the towel. I want you to wash this guy's feet. And it would probably be a good training for Peter in humility and, uh, and would accomplish the same thing. It would wash their feet. They would all feel better. They're, in those days, they, they didn't have shoes, so they had sandals. And the roads weren't paved. And there were no uh, uh, underwater uh, sewage lines. So, I mean, you just imagine what people's feet got like during the day. But, but Peter could have accomplished the job too. You know, probably not as well, but he could have done it. But it was something the Lord wanted to do. You see, it was an act of love. He wanted to love them to the end on that day. This was his last chance with them. And he just really wanted to bless them. He really wanted to show them, show them love. Um, and, and of course, Peter was offended by it, as I'm sure probably all of us would have been in the room. We just, it just wouldn't have seemed right to us to have Jesus do it. And uh, it's interesting, again, how strong Jesus' response is uh, he says, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And as I think about this, a, a picture comes to my mind. We, we think, well, boy, this was a great act of love of the Lord. This really wasn't necessary. But we forget all about the cross. Think about the cross. Well, the Son of God comes from heaven. He takes off his glory so we can see him without falling over dead. And he comes and he humbles himself. We say, not just to become a man, but then lower than a man on the cross where he says, he cries out in the psalm, I am a worm and no man. He comes to the very end and he doesn't wash us of the grime of the street. He washes us from our sins. It's an act that to him was far, far greater than the act of washing the disciples' feet. And yet that's something he had to do for every one of us. This was because he loved us. Just like it says here, Having loved his own, he loved them to the end. 
It's just an act of love. And he says this. He says, what I am doing you do not understand now, but you will understand after this. Well, maybe part of it was the fact this was an example. But I think to a great extent, Peter just didn't understand the love of the Lord. And it's something that we don't naturally understand either. There's three words in the Greek for love. And uh, we understand two of them really well because we experience those all the time. One is uh, the love between a man and a woman, which is often, uh, it's used in that word. It's the word that uh, I think erotica comes from in our language, which is really a love, you know, I like you because you make me feel good. Okay? That's not the type of love that is used in this text. Uh, the other kind of love we're fairly familiar with is phileo, which is the love of a family. Uh, I love my son because he is my son. I probably don't love your son the same way, but you do. Okay? And, and we love people that are related to us. When we have a natural relationship with them, there's a natural love that comes too. And that's a love that God created. He's the one who's, who made parents and children and made that kind of love. Okay? But again, that's not the love we're talking about. There wasn't this natural relationship between Jesus and his disciples. They were you know, people that were separated from him. The Bible says that we were actually enemies. He loved us when we were his enemies. It's a love here. It's called agape. And it's a love that just comes from himself. It's a love that has no reason outside of the person that's sharing this love with them. It's really the love of God. It's a love which we have almost no experience with except for Jesus. And therefore, it's hard for us to comprehend. And... uh <coughs> And yet, this is a love that defined the Lord and what the Lord did. It it's, uh, says in... Uh, let me go ahead and turn there really quick. Uh, if you want to, you can turn with me. It's First John. It's interesting. John is often called the apostle of love. Right. And it's... Uh, sorry, the apostle or the disciple of love. It could be either one. Really what he was is a disciple of Jesus. But he learned this key lesson that the Lord had to teach him about love. And uh, so you see, love, uh, the passage we just looked at was obviously in John. The first epistle also has a lot of teaching about love. And in verse, uh, looking at chapter 4 and verse 7. So this is 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Jesus says, Beloved, sorry, John says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us that God has sent His Son, His only begotten Son, into the world that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also are to love one another. It's, it's a love that's really new to the world. It's a love that's come, it's unexpected, and now it's revealed to believers. And yet, as we were saying, as Jesus leads, he's expecting us to follow. And we have uh, many commandments in the Bible, 
And I think sometimes we pick and choose the commandments that are easier for us to do. And uh, going back to John chapter 13 and verse 34, hopefully you kept a finger there, John 13 and verse 34, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love to one another. Well, this is one of the commandments you have in the Bible, except there's something added to it. So he's commanding us to love one another. Look around you in the room. This is the one another the Lord is talking about, other believers. Uh, he tells you how much. He says, the same way that I loved you. So what he's saying, it's, it's not the erotical love. It's not the filial love. It's the agape love. It's the love that doesn't depend on the other person on how good they make me feel or how related we might be through uh, the world's type of relationship. It's a love that should, you should love them independently of who they are just because it comes from you, really because that's the love that God gives you to love with. It was in First John, he talked about it as a test of being a disciple. Look, if someone doesn't have this love, is he really a disciple? Because God has come Reveal this love to us, given this love to us, so that we will love other people with. Now, the exceptional thing about this commandment, Jesus says in verse 35, By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This is the one commandment that by your keeping it or not keeping it, people will know whether you're really following Jesus. I remember, I don't see her here, but... Uh, Dear uh, uh, Jean Clapper, a few months ago, came in and uh, came to the meeting. She said, I love coming here because you can see that the believers really love each other. And this is the sign that Jesus wanted people coming through that door to see among his believers. This is how he wanted his believers to be known. Some, some groups want to be known for being, you know, the wealthiest. You can join a club and, sorry, you have to have $10 million to join our club because we want to be known as... The rich people, oh, you want to join this group in, uh, in you know, school. Well, you have to be one of the cool guys because we want to be known as the cool club or you can't really join. This is the one thing Jesus wanted of those that followed him, for them to love one another and for people to come in, see their love to one another and say, ah, these are Jesus followers. We heard about them. They love each other. That's how we can tell. These are Jesus' disciples. And we don't just want it for people walking through the doors. This love, this fragrance should be spread abroad. And I praise the Lord for the times we've seen it. Uh, I don't know if you've ever moved being in this chapel. But if you have, hopefully you've had a chance of experiencing the love of the saints. I basically came and I told everybody I'm moving. And they said, great, what time? And I said, well, you know, it'll be Saturday and planning to start 9 in the morning. And, uh, you know, surprise, surprise, by 10.30 in the morning I was done. Because all these saints showed up with the cars and just came and took stuff out of my house and loaded up in their car and drove it to my other car and unloaded it. And second time I moved, I, I, I had kind of an idea of what was going to happen. And I mentioned to my coworkers, I, I was moving. I, I used to live in San Lorenzo. I'm moving to Fremont. And uh, one of my coworkers said, you, maybe I'll come and show up. 
And I said, well, make sure to be there by noon because I'll be done. <laughs> if, you, if you want to see me in my old house, you're going to have to show up by noon. And we were right. By noon, we were already out. And, and one of the neighbors across the street said, uh, to, I think he said it to his wife while my wife was there saying hi. He says, you know, we need to join that church. Did you see what happened when they moved? Everybody was there. and was, was, This is what Jesus wanted. He wanted this love to be in. And I praise the Lord for the love that, that, that we've seen as evidence, but as the Bible says, you, you love one another, I want you to love another more fervently. This is the one thing that the Lord wanted to distinguish us as believers, this love to one another. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for the Lord Jesus. We, we say heartily, Lord, we are nothing without him. If he didn't come and do all the work to make us acceptable in your sight, if the cross wasn't sufficient for all things, we couldn't be here. We certainly couldn't be loving one another in this way. And yet, Lord, you came. You've enabled us to do. You've commanded us to do. And uh, you've used this for the sake of others. Lord, help us love one another as you also loved us, that people will know that we really are your followers, that people will be drawn to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name.